This is episode 12 of the V Podcast. The V Podcast is brought to you by ColvalentLeadership.com, where we help you become the best leader you can be through giving you the tools you need to develop your leadership skills. Thank you for listening and enjoy episode 12 of the V Podcast. Welcome to the V Podcast, where two men are trying to stamp out bad leadership in America, one podcast at a time. And if you're ready to become a 21st century leader, then the V Podcast is for you. On the V Podcast, we discuss the leadership problems in today's workplace and outline solutions to make you a better leader. Thank you for listening and enjoy the episode. Now, here's your host. Welcome to the V Podcast. I'm Jeff. And I'm Dr. Joe Fleischman. And we are Covalent Leadership, and we're here to stamp out bad leadership one podcast at a time because we believe that leadership in America is horribly broken. And today is a really good example of why we think leadership in America is broken. So Joe, how are things in sunny Arizona today? Hey, Jeff, the... um Ice is broken on the Santa Cruz. We hit a little over, we finally hit triple digits yesterday. Well, nice. You can take off that flannel shirt now, can't you? I'm, I'm really thinking about it. <clears throat> but it's my, it's my attachments, my emotional attachment to Idaho. So I let the flannel go with only the, a great struggle. <laughs> well, at least undo a couple of buttons for me today, will you? <laughs> You'll know when they say man found in the desert died of overheat wearing flannel shirt. You're going like, that was Joe. That was Joe. That was Joe. Well, before we dive into things today, because today I think is, is a pretty exciting episode, uh, I want to invite all of our listeners to visit our website, covalentleadership.com. There you can download our latest podcast. You can also download our leadership autopsy form that allows you to examine your organization to find out what style or what problems, what leadership problems your organization organization may have. Now, Joe, what's the beauty of those leadership autopsy forms? What is it that they really do for the folks? They afford individuals the opportunity to clearly identify the issues facing their organization, to understand why their leaders are doing what they're doing and the impact that that has on an organization. It's, it's important that we understand what motivates our leaders. There you go. And you should not be afraid to do the autopsy. Uh, a lot of people think, well, I can already see what I already know what's wrong. But, you know, as we've spent this last almost 12 episodes going through the malignancies of, that are affecting leadership today, I'd be willing to bet that if you were to go through and look at your autopsy for your organization, you would see some things that you kind of went, Oh, okay. Now I get it. Would you agree? I would. And the thing to remember, this is just a, like a medical model. When you identify something's wrong in your organization, you need to, you need to get rid of it. It's, it's a malignant behavior. And the thing that we want our listeners to know is once you've identified that malignancy and you understand how it's going to affect your organization and you want to do something about it, give us a call because we can help you address that issue and remove it from your organization and make sure that your organization stays vibrant and strong and continues to grow in a healthy way. So that's really what it's all about. Take a look at what's not working. When you figure that out, give us a call and let's see how we can help you um, get some of those malignancies addressed. 
That almost sounded like the the call for Ghostbusters. Who are you going to call? Covalent leadership. Covalent leaders. There we go. Our timing isn't very good, Jeff, but we're going to have to work on that. We need a theme song, Jeff. A theme song. Who are you going to call? <laughs> well, the thing that I liked about the Ghostbusters is they they overcame their fear to take on the the malignancies that were affecting their city at that point in time. And that's what we're talking about today is the malignancy of fear. And and you know what? That is the mother of all malignancies. Um, Because there's so many things are based on it. I've I've been looking forward to this episode uh, the whole season because this this is where it all comes from right here. I think one of the most important subjects we have, fear. And so kind of let's use an old, an old uh, communication tool. Let's tell them what we're going to tell them before we tell them. Leadership is all about formation and fear is all about control. And what we're asking leaders out there today is to, you know, pick a side. What do you want to be? Are you a leader that chooses to form or desires to form highly effective teams? Or do you want to be a leader that tries to control and manipulate through fear. Those are your choices. I think that's an interesting point. I know we're going to talk about this a little bit later, but fear is one of those tools that a lot of people resort back to when they don't have a lot of other tools in their toolbox. Right. And I think that's the biggest reason people use it, Jeff. I know you and I have spoken about this many times. For that new entry-level manager, that new mid-level manager who has had no professional development whatsoever, and, and most of them don't, they don't get it, is um, fear is the only tool they have in their toolbox. And, and today we've got a couple examples of that. I think that people will be able to shake their heads and go, yeah, that, I see that all the time in my organization. And you, and you just need to tell yourself that's because it's, it's the only tool they have. Well, you know, it's interesting you mentioned about professional development. I was teaching a class, oh, a few months ago to a bunch of first line, first time supervisors in this first time for this organization. And a lot of them had anywhere the, the, the range of experience went from five years to 20 years in, in the, their industry. And with a lot of them having five plus years of leadership experience, many of them, 10, 10 years of supervised line supervisor experience. And so I asked them, I said, how many of you have gotten uh, more than 10 hours of leadership training over the course of your career. And there was only one, maybe two hands that went up, which goes to show you that employers are not giving their employees the tools they need to be effective leaders, which then results in the old saying my, my grandpa always said, well, if it doesn't work the first time, get a bigger hammer. And the, oh, I love that, Jeff. It's so true. And the only hammer a lot of everybody or a lot of people have is the hammer of fear, the fear of God. Let's give our, our, our listeners a definition of fear so they understand just what that fear of God looks like. Um, uh, fear means to, and again, this is from Merriam-Webster, to frighten. It means to feel fear in oneself. It means to have a reverential awe of fear, to be afraid, um, that, that to be afraid. And that's where we are, a feeling of fear in oneself, to be frightened, to be afraid. So when we talk about the fear of God, boy, do we ever see examples of that. I remember the first time I experienced it, Jeff, I was in, I had just graduated from college. I was entry-level manager at a, a very large retail chain. 
And um, if you've ever worked in retail, you know the whole store runs through plot plans. And those plot plans tell you where all the product goes on the shelf. Have you worked in retail? You know, I have been fortunate enough not to have to do that. Uh, well, you get in, oh, you, so you lay the whole store out, and then the marketing managers, the district marketing managers come in, and they look at your store to make sure that the product is where it's supposed to be. And, and I remember I'd been working for this store for about four months, and the vice president of my marketing came in. And, of course, it's always a big deal whenever uh, the upper execs come to your store, right, when, whenever you get that corporate visit. Yep. So the uh, – yeah. The, so, so he took us where we're going through the store and he's got these plot plans in front of us. <clears throat> he's looking at each shelf and every aisle and, and he sees that this section we had set up for a seasonal display. It was actually uh, glassware. And he sees a seasonal display set up. We have about three feet of it wide. And he's holding the plot plan and he goes from this reasonable person to a marine drill instructor just like that fast. It was just instantly. And then he starts screaming at us at the top of his lungs, you idiots, what the hell are you thinking? You're stupid and dumb and blah, blah, blah. And he takes his hand. He can't even read a damn plot plan. And he grabs his, takes his arm, and he sweeps the entire display onto the floor, and he breaks it. And the whole time he's doing this, he's screaming and yelling at us, and he's calling us stupid. And he's saying, ah, fire your asses. You're and I'm like, I've been with this company for four months. And I'm like, wow, wow. And I thought, I'll never see this again as long as I live. I'll never see this again. But I saw it almost every time, that he, every time he came to our store, it was always like that. There was just this massive panic that this guy was coming to your store and you knew exactly what was gonna happen. And when I left that company, I thought, okay, whew, enough of that, um, I'll, I'll be safe. But then I saw that that element of fear, that's the only tool he had, was so prevalent. I saw it in, uh, later on down the road when I went to another company. And um, I was uh, working in food service at the time. And the, the regional manager would come in in the morning occasionally, and he'd always, you never knew what mood he was in. Ever worked for a boss that you had no idea what their mood was? Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and what's that like? That is just walking on pins and needles every day. Right. You don't know if they're in a good mood. You don't know if they're in a bad mood. Right. right. So you, you just, you're just panicked. You live this panicked life because you don't want to draw attention to yourself if they're in a bad mood. Right. Right. And so, so anyway, I can remember one morning it was, it was pretty common for him to do this. He, he'd come in the back door. We'd all be at work at five o'clock in the morning and six o'clock as the food was coming out and the warmers were being filled with food and we were getting ready to open up a very, we ran a large food service account and as things were just getting ready to come out, he'd come walking through the back door and, and you just wait and see what was he like. And if he went left and went to his office, you were great. If he went right and decided to go into the kitchen, you were in trouble. And this particular morning he went, he went right. He walked into the kitchen, and I was following him. Um, and, and he turned the corner, and he saw something he didn't like. And he grabbed a big pot, and he hurled it at the at the cook who was standing just at the grill. And he hurled it at the cook, and it bounced off the grill. And then he started screaming obscenities at this poor cook. And he went over there, and he, he didn't like how the hash browns had been laid out. And he spotted that all the way from across the room. He thought the hash browns were too thick on this grill.
And and then he is he's using every obscenity known to man and then some that he made up. And he's kicking garbage cans. He's throwing pots and pans. He's cursing at the top of his lungs. And he walks over to this. We have this food cart. It was about a seven-foot food cart filled with food. And he opens up the trays and he grabs every single tray and he throws it on the ground. He says, we're not feeding our people this shit. And he's throwing it out. And this went on for 10, 15 minutes. And then he walked out the door. And I was like, it was horrible. And I was just glad he was leaving. And he looked at me. He says, Joe, get over here. So I, I went over there and he went out and he stepped through the doors in the kitchen. And the minute he stepped through the doors, it was like a mask came off. And he starts laughing. And he says, Joe, I just wanted to make that a teachable moment for you. Every now and then, you got to put the fear of God into them. You need to remind them who's in charge. Wow. And I know there are people listening to this podcast who goes, I work for that man. And, <laughs> and, and you probably do. He went on to become a district manager and a vice president of that company. And he was one of the most admired vice presidents of that company. And I, I, I'll never forget why when I went to a conference, because they said he, quote, he's old school. He runs a tight ship. Old school. Wow. Well, you know what? Covalent, covalent leadership is not about being old school. It's about having the courage to form a team and take your, take your mind off yourself. So Joe, what is it that people have? What is the fear that people have that allow them to put up with bosses like that? Good question. We, we're all familiar with the big picture. We're all familiar with the, the threat of uh, you're fired. You know, we're all familiar with the, the, the threat of, of, you know, my, one of my favorite scenes in Godfather is when that head shows up in the bed. We, we get nuclear options of fear, but they're not nearly as effective as controlling individuals as the, as I, what I think of as the subtitles of fear, those elements that, that do hook us and get us out of bed every day and, and get us in the door. And there's a couple. One is the, I think it's the fear of ridicule, Chuck. I think it's the fear of ridicule that people don't want to be laughed at and they don't want to be mocked and they don't want to be made to feel um, belittled. And they do everything in their power to avoid that. And that, that's, a, that's very powerful. It's the herd mentality. I'm safe if I stay in the herd. I Yes. Yeah, just not not to be seen. There's a fear of exclusion. And I think that uh, malignant leaders who get it, who understand fear, they may not understand any other leadership tool in a toolbox, but they really understand all the nuances of the tool of fear. And the other nuance is, the, is they understand the fear of exclusion. They understand how to norm an individual's behavior by saying, look, if you want to be a part of this organization or if you want to be at this table, then you've got to behave in a certain way or else. Right? And those are the, those are the two magic words in, in being able to identify fear or else, whether it's stated or it's implied. If it's there, that's fear or else. 
That makes sense. There's the fear of demotion. Have you have you ever seen Jeff? Have you ever worked for a company where where the people are worried about keeping their position within the organization? Yeah, and that that happens a lot everywhere because people are you know we're we're, we're programmed to climb that corporate ladder so to speak, and we're programmed to try to get a little bit higher, and so when you get there, you'll do everything you can to hold on to that because that demotion is, is viewed as, as failure and nobody wants to be seen as a failure. Because being a failure is what? Bad. Yeah. It's scary. It, it's scary. The, the other subtitle of fear is, um, in evaluation. I don't want to make a mistake because my boss is going to bring that to my attention during my evaluation time, I can, I, I know countless individuals who nearly have an aneurysm every time their evaluation period comes up. And, and you know what I'm talking about. I do. Why, why do you think so many people are so fearful of their evaluations? Because they have no idea what their boss is going to say. And they're afraid that they've done something throughout the course of the year that will make them mad and and they'll put it on their permanent record and blah, blah, blah. Right. And for for many individuals, for bosses who use fear as the control mechanism, they never tell their employees what their employees are doing until that day. Uh, evaluations become the aha moment of I caught you and now I'm going to punish you. And now I'm going to tell you everything that you've done wrong all year long because they will have never spoken to that individual in a meaningful way earlier. Right. And that's, that's why everybody hates evaluations because it's, they hate them. It's that big reveal. And all of a sudden, why, why should there be a big reveal? And I used to tell people and, and for, for individuals who want to become a covalent leader, here's a tip. Talk to your people every day. Let them know what they're doing and how well they're doing it every single day. If if there was an error that's made, if there's a mistake that's not that that was that transpired, let your people know right then and right there so you can mitigate it, fix it, and move on. Our people, every person that I have ever worked with, knew what their evaluation was going to look like weeks before they ever got their evaluation. Well, I would, I would venture to say even months before they got their evaluation because you did exactly what you were talking about. You were out and about talking to people on a regular basis. So there, there was never surprises with that stuff. The, the purpose of a surprise on, a, on an evaluation is to create an aha moment and to tell you I'm in charge. But if you, if you have to wait for the evaluation time to, to, to tell your employees that, you have failed miserably as a leader. So again, I always just told my employees, you know exactly what's going to be on your evaluation. In fact, let me tell you what it's going to be. It's going to be this and this and this and this and this. And none of that's new, correct? We know, we all, we all know that. So I want you to relax on your evaluation. There are no surprises. You know, it's going to be good, or you know, this area is going to come up. Don't worry. Yeah. Yeah. So we were talking the other day about some of the consequences of fear, and you mentioned two that I thought were were pretty interesting. Yeah, and it's like like all malignant behaviors, there are consequences of failed leadership. And the first one <clears throat> that comes to mind 
is, um, you know, people die. I, I think that's interesting. As a leader, you know, we often think of ourselves not as uh, in the medical field where what we are, where we make life and death decisions. My daughter's in the medical field. My son-in-law's in the medical field. And I always say I could never do your job because when I make a mistake, nobody dies. But the reality is in corporate America, failed leaders, leaders who use fear and intimidation to control their organization, they kill individuals every day. There was a study done in um, 2006, came out and that was uh, printed in the New York Times. And, and it, it noted what industry had recognized for years that, and I think the, the title read, Most Heart Attacks Monday Morning. And if you go out and Google it and you just look at the, the rate of heart attacks that occur Monday morning, um, you'll see that it's not unique just to America. The European Journal of Epidemiology 2005 sees the same behavior, that there are excessive cardiac mortality rates on Monday morning at 8 o'clock. You know, the most popular time to fire individuals in America is Monday morning at 8 o'clock. If you make it to 9 o'clock on Monday, you're good for another week. <laughs> That's funny. That's right. Uh, so I live, my, I live my life one Monday at a time then. <laughs> so you have all these individuals that are working for managers that we described who are walking on eggshells. And, the, and there, is, there is no certainty uh, of what they're doing. There's, they're, they, just, they understand that their boss is crazy. They understand that. And that they understand the other shoe is going to fall and they have no idea why it's going to fall, when it's going to fall, or how it's going to fall. And they're just petrified. And what happens is they stroke out. They stroke out. And that's what it's all about. Because now that manager, that leader who's doing this feels great about themselves because everybody else is now going to control themselves even more. Which goes to show you that a little Monday morning yoga before you go to work is a really good idea. Oh, you know what would be even better is if our leaders got some training on how to lead people. That would be sweet. Um, but, you know, when we talk about the, the impact of fear in a real world sense, um, it even applies itself to, I remember 1997 when the uh, sovereignty of Hong Kong was transferred over to China, the newspapers started a self-censorship initiative. They had been a very free press up until that time, and they talked about everyone. They were critical of China. When Hong Kong was under British rule, they were truly critical of China. Now, now that they were coming under Chinese control, all of that criticism stopped. And, and the party line became the norm. And um, I always thought it was interesting that the, the, the president of China at that time said, look, Hong Kong's doing it to themselves. We never said a word to them. But Hong Kong had fear. And they knew, they knew what would happen if they didn't norm their behavior. So they started an, to a self-censorship program so that China wouldn't be angry with them when the power happened. And isn't that what a lot of people do in work today when they have this, this crazy whacked out leader? They, they want to avoid the anger and wrath of that leader and they do whatever they have to, to not be noticed. That's just not a great way to live your life, especially when you spend the majority of your life 
within the walls of that company and uh, living like that's no fun. That reminds me of a story that you were telling me about a college president that you worked for once that used fear and intimidation to gain control over you and the work that you were doing. Do you remember that? Yeah, I remember that. That was, that was a, uh, again, a classic fear technique. I was um, working with an individual. I was applying for presidencies for, of uh, community colleges around the country. And when I went to work for this, for this college, I made it very clear to the chancellor at the time that my ultimate goal was to become a, a community college president. That had always been my goal. And um, we had said, look, I, I'll be here three years. And then at the end of three years, I will be moving on. And we made that very clear from day one. And then we had that same discussion on day two and we had the same discussion six months later. And so it was never a hidden agenda. In fact, I, I've got to be one of the few people that ever interviewed for a job and said, I'll be more than glad to take it. But you have to understand in three years, I'm moving on to be a, a, a college president. And the president, this chancellor just looked at me and said, that's great. You know, I, I like that. So three years comes and go. And uh, I, I did my servitude and uh, I started applying for a college presidency. And when I applied for my first presidency, when I got back, the chancellor looked at me and he said, you know what this means? I'm going to have to fire you. And I, that, that's one of those aha moments. You know, you don't have people come to you every day, you know, like the, like the Trump and the apprentice, you're fired. And most people, you don't experience that nuclear option. And, and then a couple of days later, he just came back to me and he said, okay, I've reconsidered. Uh, I'll, I'll keep you here for a while. What l later, as I continued to search for presidencies, um, he ultimately came to me one day and he said, look, it's, it's clear to me that you're going to leave. And I cannot afford to have your position empty because it's an important position. So I'm going to fill your position before you leave. So I wish you good luck in finding a presidency before I find a new vice chancellor. What was that? What, what was he doing? That was just fear. That is just fear. Mm -hmm. He's trying to manipulate your actions through, through that. Had I normed my behavior and said, I'm, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to offend you. I'm not going to look for college presidencies. Would I have been okay? Yeah, I think so, probably, because he would have exerted his leadership and his, his dominance and put you in your place, so he'd have been okay. And, and he would have felt, okay, I've controlled this situation. I've put the fear that's of God what, in you. <laughs> that's what the leader is. He, I put the fear of God in him. I've controlled the situation. But the reality was I didn't modify my behavior. I simply said, okay, wait, I understand. If you'll threaten to fire me today, then, you, then you've already disassociated any meaningful bond you have with me, period. You have severed any relationship. And what, what's really important to realize in that is that not only did he not, did he sever a relationship, but there never was a relationship. That's the critical component. That is the critical component. And that's what helps drive fear from an organization is those relationships. You know, we talk about covalent, the covalent process, which is the formation of bonds. That's what drives fear from an organization 
from an organization is those bonds between leaders and their team that helps everybody feel comfortable so that they can have difficult discussions without fear of reprisal or, you know, temper tantrums going on. Right. And so, Jeff, when I, when I think of bonds, fear is the absence of bonds and covalent leadership is the complete opposite. Covalent leaders, covalent leadership is the process of forming strong, dynamic, vibrant, powerful bonds within your organization that empower your team to excel. They, they are the fuel that moves your organization forward. Leadership is all about relationships. Because when you have a real meaningful relationship with somebody, you don't look at the table and say, well, <laughs> you're fired. I wish you luck because I'm just about ready to mess your life over. Well, here's a common example, or here's, a, here's an example I think that, that a lot of people can relate to, and it comes from an article you sent me the other day about your HIPPO boss. And HIPPO is an acronym for the highest, the highest, yeah, that, that acronym, HIPPO is an acronym for the highest paid person's opinion. And the article talked about going to a, a meeting and a brainstorming session, and everybody's in there working on this creative project, and it, and in the end, they ended up going with what the boss thought was the right thing to do. And why did they do that? Because everybody deferred to them because the relationship was, well, we don't want to make him mad because if we make the boss mad, then that hurts our chance to, for promotions or to take the lead on another important project, blah, blah, blah. And that is a great example of poorly developed relationships in a meeting. And the, the article actually quotes a study done that says that more often than not, that boss's opinion in situations like that is the wrong one and takes the team down the wrong path. Jeff, how broken is an organizational culture that they fear speaking out? It's fairly broken. It's fairly broken. And you're, you're never going to innovate and you're never going to be creative in an organization like that. Right. So the key bit, the key is as a leader, how do you change that dynamic. What does it take to create an organizational culture where people are willing to take risks in front of their friends and, and articulate something that may sound stupid? You know, that's when you know you've won. That's when you know you're on the right track. <laughs> when your team sits around the table and goes, you know what I think? It's going to sound crazy, but and they throw it on the table, and you can look at that person and go, you know, you were right. That did sound crazy, and you can, you can laugh at that. When, you, when your people can laugh at themselves publicly because they don't fear sharing an, a, a weird, out-of-the-box thought, then you're winning. You're winning. That's what it's all about. And one of the things that you can do as a leader to foster that type of environment is when you're in that environment – you don't shoot ideas down. You don't ridicule or push back strongly in front of the group. You, you accept that and you roll that around and let, every, let everybody have a say to help let the group drive that. And by doing that, you foster those bonds and that ability for others to speak out. You, you remind me of, of um, Kim Jong-un. You know, <laughs> that's a fairly negative environment. And I think uh, the data newspapers report that he, you know, he kind of kills anyone who voice a different voices, a different opinion other than his own. And um, 
you know, I, th- I think he's reported for have take have having taken his his uncle out and executed his uncle with an anti-aircraft gun. So what's the message that you think Kim Jong-un was trying to share with all of the leadership in North Korea by doing so? I don't know, but I love Kim Jong. <laughs> I will not speak bad against him. <laughs> yeah, well done, Jeff. It's early in the morning. Well done. But, but you know, we have some examples that are, that are the extreme opposite of Kim Jong-un. And we admire those individuals, and it's because of their covalent qualities that we look at them and go, wow. And I know one of one of your favorites on that is Dean Smith. Explain how that works, Jeff. I love Dean Smith. And when I was starting to get into the coaching ranks, he was a person that I studied in great detail because I'd always heard about the Carolina culture. And he had worked so hard over the years to establish relationships with his players that they literally had a family environment that carried on for years and years. Dean Smith, even after that player had graduated and gone on to other parts of his life, he followed his players, and anytime they had major accomplishments, he would send them handwritten notes congratulating them on what was going on. And it was just an incredible environment that he had built because for him it was all about the relationships and developing that family culture. And I just love that. And he was one of the greatest, most respected coaches in all of basketball because of that type of environment that he created. Who doesn't want to be a part of an organization whose leadership cares? I can't think of anybody. I can't think of anybody. And that that's what Generation Next is looking for. So when we see this generation gap and we see a revolving door in the HR department, what, what we know as a symptom is that these are leaders who have not bonded to those individuals and there's no reason for them to stay. No, no. And that, you know, we've talked about General Crystal a couple of times, and I think he's a great example of the changing face of of the military and developing relationships because he's trying to develop those relationships with the people below him so that he can rely and trust them and they don't have to fear that they're going to be second-guessed all the time. And, and that's the type of leader that the millennial leaders, that the millennial workers or the millennials are looking for because they want to be a part of something. They want to be a part of something, and they want to make a difference. They want to be a part of something great. We can't lose track of that. Our people want to be a part of something great. I, I One of my favorite uh, leaders was uh, Mr. Rogers. You, know, you talk about a guy who formed strong, dynamic bonds with people. He was, he was maybe not as charismatic as some, but loved and adored by millions. He, there's an interesting story I was reading about him the other day. He had to go to New York City, and he was meeting with some producers, and um, he was very stressed, and he didn't particularly care for, for the, the trip to New York, and he got a late start, and couldn't find a cab, and he, for, he was forced to get onto the, the mass transit systems. He got on a, got on a bus, and so he was trying to f- figure out how to get from point A to point B on a bus, and he was just totally wrapped up in himself, right? He's nervous and stressed, and when he got on the bus, he said, I wasn't of a good attitude. And he sat down, and he said, somebody on the bus recognized who I was. And within seconds, the entire bus broke out in song. It's a beautiful day day in in the the neighborhood. neighborhood. A beautiful day. (laughs) 
beautiful thing in the neighbor. Won't you be mine? Won't you be mine? I love it. Oh, and he said I was on the bus and they wanted to connect with me. And I went from a horrible attitude to crying because they reached out. I was a part of them. And I for, I'd forgotten that. That's a great story. That is a great story. You know, people, people wanted to connect to him. It's a beautiful day in the neighborhood. I'm like, that doesn't, it doesn't get any better than that. That's what leadership is about. Fear is not respect. Okay. That's, that's what the big idea is about. Um, that's, that's the big idea behind leadership is that fear is not respect. And that's why Dean Smith was so well respected is because he went out and built those relationships and he didn't have to intimidate through fear and the tactics that we've talked about today because people, he had that relationship. People wanted to do what he asked them to do. And that's, that's what respect is. So my, my, my um, hope for leaders today those individuals who are, are learning to become leaders is to let that in your toolbox, take out the tool of fear and throw that damn tool away. Throw it away. You don't need it. And in the end, it is never going to serve you well as a leader because leadership is about formation, not and I like that because when you start thinking about it, that reminds me of that commercial a little a, a few years ago about the cowboys out trying to herd cats. You remember that? And the cats were going everywhere, and the cowboys were going, oh, I got this injury, and blah, blah, blah. Well, if you're trying to use fear to rule your organization, you are hurting and it's H-E-R-D, not H-U-R-T. You're hurting your organization. And that is a challenging thing. But if you can remove fear and establish those relationships, then you can lead your organization and they will follow you and they will do what's in the best interest of the organization, not in the best interest of themselves. If you want to learn how to do that, if you want to become really good at that, give us a call, drop us a line. We look forward to hearing from you and, and working with your organization. Well, that's a great place to wrap up for today. Next week, we're going to discuss the malignancy of gamesmanship, playing games, <laughs> and we're not talking board games. Well, we are talking, in a very broad sense of board games. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, as before we sign off, please, once again, feel free to visit us at covalentleadership.com. You can read our latest offerings there. You can find the books that we have there. And also you can download our leadership autopsy form, which is, I think it's a pretty good deal. So Joe, any parting thoughts for us today? Um, you know, just the usual, hey, for all you covalent leaders out there, remember, leadership is first and foremost, highly personal. Never apologize for having the courage and wisdom to make it so. So with that, we'll wrap up. I'm Jeff. I'm Joe. And we are Covalent Leadership. Until next time, have a great day.